This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. I can't think that any recent discussion we've had on the Paracast forums has consumed more pages than UFO abductions. Except like in the early years, the Billy Meyer, I said that word, the B word, filled quite a few pages of conversation. But a lot of it, you know, goes back to the episode that you and I did with Bud Hopkins and Kevin Randall and Dr. David Jacobs. But there have been responses from that person who claims she was wronged by David Jacobs in the forums. She uses the name Emma Woods, but for some reason, Dr. Jacobs calls her Alice which means maybe he's saying she's from Wonderland or something. I'm not sure. Well, she's definitely from Oz. Yes, true. She's definitely from way down under. But the problem I have here is we have a therapist in New Zealand who, upon having a patient who claims to be abducted by UFOs, seeks out somebody in America and gives permission for him to do hypnotic regression by telephone across the great divide around the world to someone he's never met. You know, what's wrong with that picture? Yeah, right. Now, it's not so much whether or not David Jacobs should be doing that. He says it's normal practice, and I have concerns about the practice. It's the mindset of an alleged therapist who will tell his patients that's okay. That worries me. The second part of it is that David Jacobs would even take upon this patient. You have somebody calling from New Zealand. You're never going to meet that person. And you accept them as someone you want to evaluate for possible UFO abductions. And then the third problem I have is with Emma or Alice or whatever her name is, agreeing to this and not just saying, this is ridiculous. Let me get some help and get on with my life. So I think everybody's wrong. Yeah, there are no winners in this scenario, and it's it's really unfortunate uh, that I think that this thing, obviously, you know, it's unfortunate, spun out of control. But I, I think it's also unfortunate that uh, it the whole scenario got got legs and started in the first place. And I, I think Jacobs has really no one to blame but himself on that. I mean, Bud, you know, mentioned on the show that he read the signs of, uh, <laughs> you know, potential problem with this particular individual when she sent a huge box of, of uh, information, uh, a lot of, you know, bewildering monitoring, uh, laborious monitoring of her vitals and stuff. I, I, I think Bud, and he did mention this, that, that he read some warning signs in that. And you would think that someone as smart as Dr. Jacobs would have also uh, you know, the thought long and hard about getting involved with this uh, person. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's uh, pretty unfortunate that it's that it's kind of unwound the way it has. And, and you're right, Gene, this has really created quite a uh, quite a number of posts on the 
on the Paracast forum. Uh, and, you know, I think it does sort of illustrate the very controversial nature, even within ufology, of the abduction phenomenon. I, and I, I was gratified to see that some of the posters agreed with uh, some of the observations that uh, Kevin and I made and that you made about the need for standardization, uh, a real, um, you know, obvious uh, need to attempt in some way, shape, or form to come up with a, with some sort of protocols or a program to obtain physical evidence, and uh, and the whole idea of, of videotape and. And utilizing technology to to bolster the claims of, of these people who, in my opinion, are having some some sort of weird, very bizarre, out-of-the-norm experiences. But, you know, again, I, I left the episode scratching my head, you know, more confused, really, than than I, I was when I started. I, I do feel people are having real experiences, but I think my gut is... is is sort of telling me that we're dealing with something that is um, that is psycho psychological in nature, I think, and and that people may be tapping into some something that is truly other. But I'm I'm still confused about the about the actual physical nature of of these claims and and of these alleged events. You know what I think, Chris? I think that if you had video cameras stationed in the bedrooms and in the homes of these people. When they have these experiences, you're not going to see anything captured. And there could be two reasons for that. One is the technology will block it. The other is that they're experiencing something real internally. And the problem I have with the whole thing, though, is not just that something might be happening that's real, but the way we investigate, there is no certainty in the medical disciplines that hypnotic regression provides an accurate recollection of the facts. Yeah, I think that's highly controversial. The second thing is because of the sensitive nature, and I'm going to assume here that Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs are totally sincere. They worked very hard to hone their skills at doing hypnosis. It should still be left to the province of therapists. Yeah, I agree. I think that that that, that particular aspect of this whole investigative approach um, does call, I think, a lot of good work uh, into question. And it does. It's kind of a baby in the bathwater type scenario. I think hypnotic regression could be, uh, you know, a valuable tool, but I don't think that it it should be the end all and be all. I don't think you should base an entire you know, legitimacy of a case based solely on on the information retrieved in that manner. Uh, I think it, it's it, until a better approach uh, is somehow you know you know they figure out some better way to to gain access to this information. I, I think it's it's always going to be a questionable subject in 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 most people's minds and even in the minds of some uh, serious UFO researchers. Also, I think that constantly dwelling on this one case becomes a sideshow, a distraction. Because no matter whether Dr. Jacobs did anything wrong, let's assume that he did something wrong and she's right, or that she is completely wacky and he did most things right, whatever. It's a distraction because we're focusing on one case, one problem. We need to focus on the entire picture the entire evidence to see where it goes, where it takes us, and what validity it has, and also what methods best serve this kind of study. And it can't happen if we just focus on this emotional issue. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. And, and it does, it, you know, I've always kind of wondered, uh, I, I don't know that much about the, the background of her particular case, but, but, you know, there is, uh, I think a hint of, of setup and, um, and I, I do feel that the, the the person at the other end of this uh, particular controversy there in New Zealand is it appears to me that she could she could use some uh, serious professional psychological help. I kind of feel for uh, for David in that he's having to deal with someone that that is just so um, just hell bent for leather to to really go after him and. You know, it's really unfortunate, like you said, that we're spending so much time uh, discussing the merits of of this particular uh, case uh, in terms of the approach that, that Jacobs uh, elected to, to use, and and it, it, we are sort of losing sight of the obvious reality of these uh, these very puzzling events in people's lives. And and the one thing that I think. Uh, shouldn't be forgotten and you did just mention this is is that david and, and bud have really uh, in some sense of the word uh, have really helped a lot of people come to grips with uh, very puzzling events in their lives and and that particular sense of service that they have applied to this uh, is highly commendable and and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that uh, they they really are attempting i think in, if, with good hearts to 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 truly help people and and to truly provide them with some sort of recourse uh, uh, to come to grips with these experiences and that that's something that should never be forgotten by anybody on either side of this particular Emma Woods controversy and and just looking at abduction uh, researchers in in I think in general I think that they are attempting to help people uh, but there is no substitute for you know, for professional psychological um, involvement in in some of these cases, and that that's something I think that should be brought into uh, into some of these people's uh, lives and cases uh, more so than it is. This week we're exploring UFOs from here, and it still might be the cause of these abductions. But to give people a background, in a recent show we focused on a book called The Crypto Terrestrials by the late Mac Tonys, where he talked about a race of beings that perhaps exists or coexists with us. They stay hidden from us in the oceans, in the caves, whatever. And this brings to light lots of other fascinating possibilities. One of those I mentioned was, of course, the case of Richard Shaver, who said he visited the Deros and Tiros in the caverns. And we're going to make this sort of a sequel to that discussion, talking about Earth-based UFOs, the hollow Earth, and everything more. Our guest will be Mike Cleland, Alan Greenfield and William Michael Mott coming up next on The Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free Whois Guard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at the That's news at the 
And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. As you know, the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. With more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers, for listeners of the Paracast, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One book to consider, for example, is Above Top Secret, the worldwide UFO cover-up by Timothy Good. Timothy Good, as you know, has been a guest on the Paracast. For this book or another free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash paracast. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. The subject is UFOs from Earth. In the tradition of that recent book from the late Mac Tonys, The Crypto Terrestrials, my co-host Christopher O'Brien, we welcome my good old friend Alan Greenfield. He's good and old, or something like that. Mike Cleland, William Michael Mott. Um, I'm as young as I feel. How old do you feel, Alan? No, I'm about 36. Okay, well then, the 36-year-old Alan Greenfield is with us. Alan, in the previous discussion, I, do. I mentioned... Our famous all-night conversation from the 1960s, the legendary conversation, where we decided that UFOs maybe are not extraterrestrial. And maybe we'll just focus on that with you. At one point when you were starting out as a UFO researcher, did you feel that maybe it wasn't E.T., that maybe something else caused this to happen? Well, right around the time we had that particular discussion, and it was more like two and a half days with no sleep, so, you know, we should put that in context. I was just beginning to doubt the ETH as it's called. I, I really don't think that it's it's genuinely a hypothesis. It's, um, it's an idea, and it's, you know, it's useful as an idea, but really I don't see any connection. UFOs are seen around or on the Earth and not the only the only spacecraft I know of anywhere else are on the moon and Mars and we put them there. Other than that, the connection itself is very strange. But up until that point, I was right in transition. I was moving from what I would call being pro-ETH to being doubtful about that and looking for something that I was then calling the alternate reality theory. Well, Jim Mosley, who is you know sort of the 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 originator of an Earth theory that it was the secret weapon sort of thing, um, introducing that to ufology. And he came up with the notion of right around the same time of the three and a half D theory. That was also the time that little like John Keel started to interject himself into our circle, and that he always had uh, sort of a different idea of things. So I was thinking in a different direction, and I suppose after 36 hours or so, oh, we were discussing the Jewishness of Columbus and a lot of other very strange things. <laughs> I don't want to Why get into that, folks. Look in some direction other than extraterrestrial. And a Jewish Columbus. Well, 
the point being that all ideas, well, uh, actually, there's a, a bit of evidence for that, but it seemed a lot bigger after 36 hours of no sleep. But, but after we woke up, I think there were still some compelling you, ideas uh, there, Alan, right? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I have gone on to have a much more complex idea that I have never subscribed to an extraterrestrial notion of uh, the origin of UFOs. I think the... Uh, secret is much more complex than that. When we talk about Earth-based UFOs, we tend to think of people like Richard Shaver. Now, I knew Shaver. Alan knew Shaver. You know, I met Shaver at his famous cottage in Arkansas. I don't know who it was where Bill Clinton or Mike Huckabee were born, but, you know, in this cottage way out in the woods. William Michael Mott, you've written about Richard Shaver. What attracted you to that? Some people felt... Shaver was just a science fiction writer. Uh, right. Maybe he was a little bit nuts. What did you think, Michael? Well, you know, my introduction to Shaver came um, through, through the works of people like Keel and, and Steiger. And, uh, you know, when I was a young fellow, and of course I was a, a pulp fiction fan, and uh, I'd heard of Shaver. I wasn't real familiar with his work, but when I saw that, that he had these alternative theories, and particularly the way in which he was uh, vilified and ridiculed and, and, and so forth, you know, it piqued my interest. But I really didn't start looking into Shaver, his ideas in depth, until I started looking into some of these other matters in depth. And like Alan, I, I kind of reached the conclusion that not just UFOs, but most, if not all, of the mysteries that people are so fascinated by, really, the, the overwhelming evidence is, it seems to indicate that those mysteries have their origins right here on Earth. I mean, there's nothing that people see or experience that is in any way truly alien in terms of the biology. They usually have, you know, mammalian, reptilian, or even human characteristics. They seem to have a, what, what I call an earthly vertebrate template. And, and the evidence is just overwhelming in terms of, you know, it's like I told somebody recently on another radio show, if these beings were from somewhere else, then if they had the technology to for, inter, for interstellar flight, if they had the technology to, to reach or surpass the speed of light, if they had the technology to create wormholes or to travel between dimensions, then if they have a genetic dilemma or a genetic problem that they desperately need to fix, first of all, why would they choose us? Because they're going to be so genetically dissimilar that it's just absurd that they would even do so unless they came from the same genetic uh, biosphere. The other part is of this idea is that genetically speaking, if they're that advanced, they would have the nanotechnology or the advanced technology or the science that would enable them to, to simply recombine their own DNA. They could repair their own genetic damage. They wouldn't need to uh, take part in, in the same types of predatory sexual exploits that the fairies took part in, that the demons and the succubi and the incubi. You know, they wouldn't have to resort to these same tactics that actually they've been resorting to under different names for thousands of years. There's an indication there's a, a huge deception, and that's something I think that Shaver kind of touched on. You know, there, there's a deception in place where there's a desperation on the part of these beings to say, hey, we're not from here, we're from up there, look up there. We're from way over there, we're from this star or that star. And it's almost like a, almost like a, uh, they're trying to beat people over the head with this idea. It's, uh, it's obvious that, that you know, if, if they've got a predatory or a parasitic relationship with us, and they always have, it's not in their best interest for us to know that they're from here. Uh, it, 
it's in their best interest to keep us looking up or into other dimensions or all these other ideas that, that they that they throw at us when we have our encounters. But when the actual hard reality it seems to be indicated by the evidence and by the encounters that people have always always had with these beings for thousands of years, is that they're from right here and they have an agenda and they one of the main things they have developed over time is an incredible ability to fool us. They know how we work, they know how we think, and they're very good at diverting our attention elsewhere. Now, we have an additional guest who has popped in amazingly, not with a strange telegray like the Deros and Tiros use, but just sort of popped in, and that's Walter Bosley. Walter, welcome to the show. Maybe frame your particular viewpoint about UFOs and mysteries like that caused by something terrestrial base what do you think um i'm yes absolutely i'm on board now i I believe you know in the macrocosm yes i do think there are extraterrestrial uh, civilizations of course but i think um there there is definitely a hidden civilization um on this planet um there is activity generated from this planet and on this planet that really explains a lot of the um ufo activity and, and I believe there's a lot more um, – I, I think you can point to a lot more evidence for this than you can E.T. visitation. How do you say a lot more evidence, Walter? Well, when you look through ancient history, and, and particularly, um, you know, there, there's the couple of writers that really, you know, back up what I'm saying. That, that actually is where I learned uh, about a lot of this were, uh, of course, going back to Jacques Fallet's work and, and Mike, uh, Mike Mott's uh, stuff. You know, he's been uh, talking about this for years, and he's really compiled all the um, ancient history. Uh, you know, throughout ancient history, we've had these stories of, you know, in some cases they called them the gods, and, and in other cases the, the, the fairy folk. And there's just always been this presence throughout history of these um, hidden races. And it's just kind of funny how in our era, you know, the last 50 years, 60 years, the era of Roswell, we've mostly wanted to push that aside and, and insist, you know, that it's all coming from other planets. When actually we have thousands of years of history um, stating where it comes from, that, you know, it came from this planet and that it comes from underground. And yet we've only had about, you know, a, a half a century or 100 years of, of serious. It all comes from E.T. Um, I, I think the history outweighs the ancient history. In the past history outweighs the recent um, ET hypothesis as only answer, you know, a hundredfold. So basically, hundreds of years ago, and anyone who could pick up on this, if we had strange visitors or strange airships, we'd always think they were from here. We'd never think ET. Who wants to pick up on that? Well, uh, I can say a couple of things about it if you want me to. Please, Alan. That would be Alan, you know, so that people know. First of all, I think that it's worthwhile before we get past Richard Shaver to point out that ultimately the origin, as far as Shaver was concerned, was extraterrestrial. Uh, Nero and Tiro, uh, according to Shaverian lore, as Shaver projected it, that they were degenerate descendants of extraterrestrials from deep space who left the Earth long ago because our sun became um, an age, a source of aging and like the Nortons who never come near any sun. Other races, the Titans and Atlans, specifically left the Earth, leaving the surface to us uh, hominids and the interior of the Earth to 
uh, these degenerate beings who had access to really advanced technology. I say this without any belief one way or the other about it. I just find the, the extraterrestrial notion, and I will call it notion, not theory or hypothesis, because there's absolutely, it's not preponderance of evidence, there's absolutely no evidence of anything throughout history coming here from out there, per se, from Sirius or anywhere else, even if one has some speculations in that direction, they're seen here or near here or hovering above here. They're not seen anywhere else. I wonder why, just going back to the beginnings of ufology, why the first thing that would occur to people would be that they came here from other planets. Of course, in earlier eras, they came here from heaven or hell or the automatic response response depends on the culture of the times. Now the phenomena may play to that, but I'm pretty sure that whether it does or does not, nevertheless, the situation is that we take this phenomena in our own cultural terms. And of course, at the beginning of the post-World War II era, when rocket rocketry was becoming known and the notion of the space flight was beginning to be heard, that was what occurred to people rather than angels or demons or the little people or whatever, even though the phenomena as such, stripped of any interpretation, is pretty much the same throughout recorded history and probably judging from certain cave paintings, prehistory. You it just I, doesn't doesn't wash. It's a it's a projection. Right. Do you mind if I if I interject something here? Sure, Michael. Uh, yeah, Alan is touched on some interesting points and when it comes to Shaver, you know, Shaver's of course Shaver comes under a lot of fire because he spent time in the mental institution. But of course, you know, what event what personal event may have actually pushed him to that point. You know, people don't go there. They just want to ridicule the man because he was in an institution for a few months. He wrote Pulp Fiction. He was fascinated by Pulp Fiction, but he came from a family of writers. His brother wrote for Boy's Life. You know, he always wanted to be a writer. But think about Schaefer, and it comes across in his writing, like Alan was saying, he talked about the Atlans and the Titans leaving the Earth because of the dangers, the dangers of the sun. They're degenerate. Descendants who may or may not be partially human or or superhuman at one point, you know, went beneath the earth. And once they couldn't make it onto the ships, you know, they, they there wasn't enough space for everybody, and so they over time they degenerated because I, I'm assuming because of radiation in the earth because the earth is very radioactive. I mean, you're constantly in the in the earth. I mean, they worry about radon in your home. Can you imagine living in a cave? You know, so you know he, he had this idea that they had left. But he, he was kind of confused on the point of whether they were originally from far away or if they simply became a spacefaring race. He would go back and forth in his fiction in particular as to whether they were from somewhere else or if they were from here. And they developed the technology and the, and the, uh, the vehicles and everything else in order to leave the planet. And the interesting thing about this is that, you know, you'll find parallels to this in a lot of ancient traditions, you know, whether it's the Indian, uh, the Nagas, and with their Vimana flying craft, or whether it, and of course, they're subterranean. Or, or whether it's uh, the, the Nephilim from the Hebrew tradition and the Sumerian tradition, who, you know, they basically were fallen angels who took human form, or humanoid form, and, and intermarried with human women, or and had children who were hybrid offspring, and you know, and then once the wrath of God fell, they they also 
were either imprisoned or fled under the earth. And this is an archetype that exists in almost every culture. And I don't know how Shaver picked up on that because there are so many things in his work and in the stuff that he says is nonfiction that are archetypal, but they're archetypal to the degree that it would have taken a tremendous amount of study on his part to uncover some of the things that, that he put in there. And, um, you know, when you look at UFOs, like, like Alan said, you know, the action is here. The action's here on Earth. This is where all the genetic stuff is. This is where all the value is. You have these, this supposed uh, concern with nuclear testing. Well, if they live here, they're going to be a little worried about that. You know, you have people claiming they see these beings testing the soil and taking plant samples and stuff. Well, you know, again, maybe they want to gauge what we're doing to the surface environment that they see as the farm, essentially, or a garden. But on top of that, UFOs are seen in the vicinity of the Earth. Of course, we know that things have been seen on and around the moon, and there may be you know, possible indications like, like the Russian uh, satellite that disappeared close to Mars when it encountered a large craft, and there's a video of that, and I've got it somewhere. I don't know where I have it, but anyway, the thing about that is if you have an ancient civilization that originated here, here we are, we're 50 years into the idea, the serious idea of space flight. And by the way, I believe that, that a lot of this uh, UFO, the ETH is influenced by science, early science fiction, I believe, going back to Jules Verne, you know, from the Earth to the Moon, or even to the uh, Percival Lowell and his canals on Mars, or Edgar Rice Burroughs, Martian stuff. I believe that that has a huge influence on a lot of people who now are ETH proponents, whether they want to admit it or not. But, you know, if we're already trying to fling ourselves into the void, we're already trying to reach out to other planets, we're sending probes, we're talking about, you know, terraforming Mars and all this other stuff, who's to say that a previous civilization that met us in by whatever or diminishing or its genetic bottleneck or whatever the problem is, who's to say that in their heyday, you know, when they were in their prime, that just like Shaver's Titans and Atlans, that they didn't originate here but branch out to the surrounding environment, whether it's our moon or Mars or even even some of the uh, uh, some of the strange moons like uh, isn't it Iaptus, which has some pretty anomalous structures associated with it. You know, there there are some things that that indicate that these structures are very very ancient. Something cataclysmic happened in the solar system, and that may be part of this whole thing of the sun changing its becoming more deadly to to, to living tissue. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial you're in the paracast you never know what's going to happen next
We have Walter Bosley, William Michael Mott, T. Allen Greenfield, Mike Clellan, Christopher O'Brien is co-host this week. Christopher, in your exploration of the mysteries of tricksters, what kind of evidence did you see that might indicate the Earth-based phenomenon here? Well, I, I, first I want to uh, uh, welcome our guests. Uh, this is a fascinating topic. I've always had an interest uh, for many years in alternative theories to the ETH. And, I, and I, Alan, I, I love uh, your pointing out that uh, the ETH is really not an accurate term. I think I've come up with a new one. The, the ETA, the extraterrestrial assumption, uh, I think would probably be <laughs> as accurate. As, as many of the listeners know, I do not uh, conform to uh, your standard ufological uh, assumption of thinking that we're being visited from from out there. I do think that we owe it to ourselves to exhaust all closed system explanations before we get um, human-centric enough to think that we're important enough for anything out there to come here and visit us. I have uh, always, as I said, had an interest in this particular angle, um, and I, I want to uh, commend uh, Michael Mott on his observation that that all cultures, uh, going back into probably prehistory, have a tradition or some form of folklore or stories that relate to underground dwellers. Um, and he did point out the Nagas, uh, for instance, in Tibet, Palulu Kang, uh, in the Hopi tradition, uh, the Cherokee chasing out a moon-faced people who uh, were, the, according to them, the mound builders, and then went back underground into caverns. Um, the examples are, are just everywhere that you look, and if you do some research, you'll find this. Obviously, scientifically, there's some problems with a subterranean uh, theory, and that's one area that I would like to get into is is um, looking at some of the problems, uh, the physical uh, problems that would be inherent in actually having some sort of subterranean civilization. Um, the whole idea that Shaver came up with, with the uh, the fact that radiation was uh, detrimental to uh, the detrimental robots and and, and the Taros, uh, I I find that very interesting, and and I think Michael's point about uh, you know possibly returning species uh, coming back to. Uh, the nest, so to speak. How do we know that dinosaurs uh, didn't evolve? I mean, dinosaurs were around for, geez, how many? 300 million years almost, or uh, 200 million years, and, and possibly a million years before the Cretaceous, they could have become sentient and spacefaring and left the planet knowing that there was going to be an, a, you know, a catastrophic uh, you know, event like the end of the Cretaceous. So, I mean, these are all elements that your, your rank-and-file true believer being programmed by pop culture to believe that all these craft and, and these strange events that are being reported are, are coming from off-planet. And, and I, I, I really am quite pleased that uh, finally I think we're seeing a resurgence of, of uh, rational creative thinking when it comes to all this particular subject and, and, and the alternative uh, theories and views that are out there. Mike Clellan, you were attracted as the artist for the book, The Crypto Terrestrials by the late Mac Tonys. How were you attracted to his ideas? What inspired you to come up with those illustrations? Uh, I first was attracted to Mac Tonys. Uh, I heard him interviewed on the Tim Benal audio uh, podcast, and that would have been in 07. And it was a very interesting reaction. Um, he talked mostly about um, the Mars book that he worked on, as well as his crypto terrestrial book, which was uh, very much in its infancy at that point. And, uh, I just remember feeling the sense of, I got to talk to this guy. And I, I literally searched him out and called him up on the phone out of the blue. And we struck up quite a nice friendship. I have never met the guy. And I, that, that's one of the, well, it's a sad thing. So it would be a sad part of my life forever, knowing that I never had a chance to meet him. But I do consider him, I did consider him quite a good friend as far as, uh, 
just talking with him. We had a lot of late night phone conversations and, uh, and we talked a lot about the book. I offered to do the illustrations and he quickly agreed. And, um, the book, as it was in its Genesis, I sent, uh, we were sending illustrations back and forth a little bit and he was delightful to work with anything I would do. He would just go, great, great, wonderful. And, uh, we both talked a lot about our crumb. We were both big R. Crumb fans, and I purposely did the interior. I did not do the cover. Someone else did the cover. But on the chapter headers, those illustrations, I purposely tried to do in sort of an R. Crumb style. And people have been avoiding using the term ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, and Mac was completely content with it, so I'll just run with that, and I'll be content with it too. He did not dismiss the ETH hypothesis out of hand. He, he very much considered that it may be a part of this whole a mysterious uh, realm, it, uh, he, but uh, you know, to, to dismiss it as either or, uh, he, I think he was very eager to include it somehow as both and, is at least in his thought process. And he was quite open about saying that his whole book and his all his ideas were just a um, oh a thought experiment. If nothing else, he was so gifted at at speculating. He would he would uh, he was very clear when he was speculating, and he loved the game of speculating. So this is this is uh, I'm enjoying this greatly because the uh, the act of speculating and this kind of thing is wonderful. Alan earlier talked about the fact that you know we just somehow assumed uh, after World War II that these uh, these uh, visitations, these sightings, these craft in the sky were were we just made the assumption that they were from outer space. And uh, and I think the same way we would have made the assumption if we had seen something in 13th century uh, Rome that they were from, uh, you know, demons or angels. And it's interesting, only now, like there's a frontier that exists the same way that space was a frontier at one point. Um, there's a frontier right now in the in the realm of uh, new sciences, in the realm of like multidimensional uh, and I'm not a physicist, so I will pretend to try to define what that means. But in the, in the realm of uh, dark matter and, and multidimensional ideas and, and uh, what was just a few decades ago uh, in the realm of, of uh, science fiction is now being addressed quite openly in the scientific literature. And Mac followed that stuff uh, very closely. And um, so I'm wondering whether they will start presenting themselves to be multidimensional in in more overt ways now that we have this new frontier at our at our doorstep um something a science that really didn't exist uh just a generation ago so you're saying basically mike that it's reflective the phenomenon is reflective of what our society expects of them well, very much so. I mean, the airship sightings that took place uh, over a hundred years ago, where where uh, the people who stepped off those craft uh, were bearded men in in dirty work clothes. Uh, you know, in essence, you know, working the steam engine that's inside the craft somehow. And uh, you know, presently in our present day science, we're at the forefront of of uh, genetic manipulation. We're at the forefront of of uh, artificial intelligence. We're at the forefront of of um, uh, virtual reality and all these things are being projected and somehow uh, being reported by uh, oftentimes by the people that claim the abduction phenomena they are reporting things that are just the forefront of our science going back to the uh, Betty Hill abduction she talked about getting a a, med a medical procedure where something was inserted in her navel and it was just a short time after that less than a decade where that became a reality as a, as a form of uh, a pregnancy test. Alan Greenfield, you had a comment. So 
well, yeah, although all of these ideas uh, keep bouncing around in my head. Number one, uh, I've come up with my term, the extraterrestrial speculation. I'll go for that as a legitimate speculation. Okay, so it's ETS. With with my website. Yes, the ETS, not the ETH. It doesn't have any special evidence for it, but it doesn't have any special evidence against it unless one argues that the similarity of um, bipeds walking around would be unlikely and the problems involved in traveling from one solar system to another, et cetera, et cetera. Unless you go into to that sort of thing to say that it's, quote, impossible, which I reject out of hand, it's a speculation, no more, no less. I find it interesting that it's the first thing that people grabbed for. You don't have to go back to the 1300s to... Um, to, uh, uh, to find other interpretations, of, uh, we used to talk a lot about uh, the early 20th century um, apparition of the Virgin Mary and a UFO at, at Fatima in, I believe, Portugal. And uh, that was interpreted as the Virgin Mary and the sun coming down out of the sky. Well, of course, if the sun had come down out of the sky, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So I assume that well, maybe we would. <laughs> but that would be uh, was seized upon by ufologists at one time for see there were earlier UFO cases. But again. What is more valid about the speculation that it was the Virgin Mary and it was an apparition of the sun coming down out of the sky than to say these are beings from Sirius, uh, a planet around Sirius C. Uh, they're, they're of uh, equal um, measure because they're both speculations. I wanted to say something about before we completely uh, move away from talking about Shaver and the inner Earth theory. I, for the reasons that would be obvious to anyone who knows about mass and the uh, nature of the Earth and so forth, um, the likelihood that the Earth is hollow is somewhere near zero. I don't do absolute zeros on any things that I don't know for absolute certain because I've seen too many things change in my lifetime so far and wouldn't be surprised to see more as time goes on. But uh, the Earth is uh, unlikely to be hollow in the way that Shaver looked at it, and that is not my my opinion at all. Caves are another matter. I used to... Um, uh, and I, I feel some, somewhat guilty about this. I used to identify to people places that I knew that there were caverns that people had entered and had, had experiences not dissimilar to Shaver. Shaver, by the way, reported the same thing. But what I, um, I don't do that anymore because all of these very crazy amateur people who don't really know what they're doing are so eager to know where these locations are so they can jump down a cave and get themselves killed like those um, that tragedy in the mine in, in West Virginia so recently. Um, I don't tell people where these locations are because uh, there are a lot of idiots, uh, brave idiots out there. But one thing that I've noticed from the accounts that I've heard over a very, very long period of time that is consistent is there is something about these cavern entrances that suggests they are something more like a stargate than they are like an entrance to the inner earth. 
up to a certain point, they are either old mines or caves or natural um, configurations, and then what people report is this uh, sort of Stargate phenomenon. I'm not even sure that the whole Stargate universe wasn't influenced, uh, as science fiction wasn't influenced by the experience. You feel like you're going through this tunnel, very similar to near-death experiences, and then you are in otherwhere. It's kind of like the picture we see in the movie Stargate, where they go the transformation, where they go to the Pegasus galaxy. Right, exactly. Or you can look at it in that way, or you can go back to the the original series, The Time Tunnel, which uh, Stargate, the TV series, is sort of based on, where you're going through time, or space-time, or to some other um, dimensional configuration altogether. I don't think most of the people, certainly not any of the people that I've talked to who have had that experience are certain where this other where is that that is in space and time. But we do have some clues. One of them was just alluded to in the uh, 1897 airship cases now 100 and what, 113 years ago. Um, they look very much like what one would realistically expect only about 10 or 15 years too soon. If you look at the 1809 Jane's All the World's Airship, that's what they were looking like, but it was 10 years later. There weren't any airships of that sort in 1896-97 when these these alleged cases took place. And lesser known are, during that same period in in Northern Europe, a lot of um, aeroplanes were seen. And they had the configuration of the spirit of St. Louis, 1920s-style uh, uh, single-wing aircraft. Alan, if I may interrupt a second. What you're suggesting here is that what we see, this phenomenon, seems to predict the reality, or is the reality itself maybe being influenced by what we see? I think some of both, actually. Uh, certainly, um, we interpret according to our uh, our own culture and time and so forth but i think uh i think the ufo phenomena tend to be outside of space time as we normally understand it in origin if origin is the right word there you get it gets very complex when you're not talking about things that are inside space time and they may be from other planets in, in the universe that we know from other dimensions and other planets, the same planet in slightly different form, the future, the past, the future becoming the past, the past becoming the future. I suspect that it's all of these things because we have a very, very slim sliver of reality that we're part of, and we call that space-time, and that's the way we negotiate our day-to-day uh, existence, and that's how we get across the street hopefully without getting hit by a truck. Walter? Uh, I I just wanted to throw in here uh, both um, uh, Mike and, well, Chris started it off, then Mike carried it, and now Alan. And uh, the interdimensional aspect is something that um, I personally began to um, see in all this and embrace about 15 years ago. And it was about 13 years ago, I remember distinctly. You usually do remember these things when you you know, you know have kind of a eureka moment. It's around 1997 when I was assigned to uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, of all places, um, I, you know, I, I was thinking that, wow, um, perhaps the big secret here 
isn't so much that there's life on other worlds, um, I begin to wonder, and I'm not, this is, idea is not original with me. I'm just sharing with you the first time it came to me. Um, maybe the idea of the whole ET hypothesis or assumption um, has been part of the cover for interdimensional or time travelers. That, that's something we, we also have to consider very specifically within the realm, the spectrum of interdimensional ideas is that what Alan was just saying, absolutely right. The airships kind of just a few years before these things actually came to be, it could very well be that um, these are time travelers. And um, they definitely are coming to kind of motivate us and seed our ideas. Um, and, and maybe it's much easier for people to embrace the idea that, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, we come from Venus, we come from Mars, we come from Zeta Reticuli, because actually the idea of coming from another time is just so beyond the grasp, the practical grasp of many people, e- even today. There's a lot of people that would be very much qualified to be in this conversation as anybody that would still say, oh, no, 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 not time travel. But I personally, my experience is I lean towards the interdimensional and very much um, the time travel uh, idea. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Walter Bosley, William Michael Mott, Alan Greenfield, Mike Cleland, our co-host is Christopher O'Brien. Walter, of course, the science fiction movies talk of a time paradox. You go back in time, you change something, therefore it affects the future. Or maybe it was meant to be in the first place. So how do you deal with that? I think you don't worry about it as much as the movies and popular culture would have us worry about. They, they tend to I, – I think the origin of such um, – since we're talking about you know, the, the pop culture aspect, a lot of the origins of that come from you know, thinkers with an agenda that is really anti-technology. Um, you know, humanity's a bad, bad thing. And, and if you've heard me you know, on other places, I am not a human apologist. Uh, we, we've beaten ourselves about the head and ears long enough. It's time to be a little more balanced and stop that crap. I think it's done. I think those who are doing it, they've obviously figured out a protocol. Um, I think uh, allowing those who encounter them to believe they're from another world and not appearing on command and being so elusive is part of that protocol. 
to not um, influence too much. But I don't think they worry about it so much that they don't do it. And you know what? I would agree with that. I, I, it is not immoral at all to time travel. Not at all. You know, just be responsible about it and, you know, go forth. Um, you know, that's that's <laughs> my personal philosophy. The future's not for the faint of heart. When you have a chance, I'd like to interject on some of the things that Walter said, too. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, um, Walter has some interesting points in terms of uh, time travel, and, and then Alan had mentioned something about the portals. And, of course, um, and this is something I, I do touch upon in, in my book, but there seems to be something that indicates that that there are different entities of matter associated with some of these beings. It's as if they don't belong or they've come too quickly into our environment. They're either too dense or they're not dense enough. They have problems breathing. Or else when they're encountered by a human being who reacts in a self-defensive manner, they seem to be extremely compact and extremely dense. And, uh, you know, things like hitting, hitting them with a uh, shovel, like a guy in, in the... Puerto Rico did, or, or you know, doing these types of things, shooting with bullets like you know, with, with the Kelly Gollums. I mean, they, they don't have it doesn't have much effect on them. It's as if they're a part of another reality. But I say this in regard to the, the path to the portal. If they come from another part of the electromagnetic spectrum, that in no way stay would, would indicate that they come from another planet. It would only indicate that they would come from somewhere else within the density of our own planet here. And my, the only problem I have with travel to this is that as the Earth moves, as the solar system moves, we, we enter a whole new realm of, uh, of questions here that, that we really don't have any answers for. For instance, you know, do we, do we carry our space-time bubble with us so that our entire history is intact, or do we trail it behind us as we go around the, the center of the galaxy? I mean, that, things like that would have to be in some way calibrated for in order to make time travel feasible. Otherwise, you would go back in time and you would end up where the Earth was, you know, 12,000 years ago instead of where it is today. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I guess you get just what I'm saying. That if there are portals, and, you know, there's some indication that there's some sort of density thing here. Would you travel from one density to another? And, and that could be the same thing as what Hill talked about with his uh, with his his idea of traveling along the spectrum of visible light and, and reality itself, you know, the electromagnetic spectrum. If there are portals in these caves or, or in some regions under the Earth that are a natural, a natural manifestation that has to do with the, the electromagnetic field of the Earth, then that would explain a lot of this. So it would explain a lot of the, the, uh, uh, why only certain areas, why, why you have window areas, why you, like, like uh, the San Luis Valley, why you have these areas where they're, they're much more, there are much more geomagnetic anomalies associated with some of these things. And uh, again, it, it may be that areas like that would lend themselves better to time travel. They would lend themselves better to traveling along that spectrum to come to our reality. And when you think about the legends of, of, of humanity, you have you have folklore all over the world, and it's the equivalent of missing time. Where you have the fairy lore, where people, you know, or you know, they accidentally stumble into fairyland and they're gone for what they think are three days, and they come back and it's 50 years, or a Van Winkle thing, or else they they are gone for just um, for a very long time, and they come back and they're old and everybody else is still just about the same as they were when they left. And this might indicate, you know, the, the, some sort of a, a paradox that has to do with time and with density and with, and with the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum. 
I think that we've got to start looking at these things more as a manifestation of our planet. And I know that that our you know if you're a if you're a technologically advanced society that's been here for for thousands or millions of years, you would learn the intricacies of your own planet. You would learn you know how to move along these conduits of reality that are associated with the place where you live. It's uh, it, it seems to me that. Uh, uh, what, what Chris said earlier, and this is something, you know, of course, I have in my book, too, but about the reptilian humanoids, about, you know, the dinosaur genome developing a humanoid form that eventually left the planet. Maybe they eventually left the planet and some are returning, or they see us as their property because they were here first. Or maybe, also, they've discovered these conduits through the continuum, but they're all localized to our planet. And, uh, you know, it just seems to me that to, to jump to any conclusion about them being from far away, it's just that it's jumping to a conclusion. And it doesn't really fall off, for instance, Occam's razor. And, you know, William of Occam basically stated that no matter how absurd it might seem, the simplest answer is usually the correct answer. And so when you exhaust all these various theories and, and postulations and so forth, the simplest answer is that they're from here, and they always have been. And, uh, you know... You have, you have space in every folk system on this planet, every religious system, about underworlds, about hells, about uh, fairyland, about all these different places, but they're all associated with this planet. The only one that's not associated with this planet is the transcendent, like hey, or nirvana. That's something that says, okay, there's a greater reality beyond this planet, but the more, um, the meteor, fleshly ideas relating to this have to do with the earth itself i guess that's pretty much what i want to say i'd like to jump in and and uh, and mention something uh, you brought up the san luis valley and window areas this is an area of uh, the, of particular interest to me having investigated the san luis valley for uh, almost 20 years now um and and one thing that 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 has always struck me and some of the cases that have always puzzled me the most um, where a whole flurry of activity that happened in 66 through 69 where these small scout ship-sized uh, objects above 12, 12 feet long or so were seen entering and leaving what looks like just a, a mountainside. And these things would zip around, they dive-bomb cars in, in broad daylight, and then they would be observed going directly into a mountain with no apparent opening. This suggests to me that some sort of density uh, manipulation uh, was at work. And um, if you do some research, you'll find out that there are quite a number of reports of objects that seem to inexplicably be able to go directly into solid rock. So this would, uh, you know, obviously suggest that we are dealing with some sort of phase um, capability uh, in, you know, in terms of density and, and being able to manipulate uh, and go in and out of some sort of uh, time-space uh, phase, and I, I, I've always been uh, fascinated with the whole idea of window areas and portal areas, and um, Lewis Turry came up with an interesting um, formula, which I've kind of added to um, over the years, and that is that if an area has unusual geophysical properties, um, for instance, uh, the Earth's magnetic field is, has minimum and, and maximum density and strength, rather, field strength in close proximity to one another, and if you have a history of, of sacredness in the indigenous culture and a history of, of sighting events, chances are the military and the government's also going to be very interested in the area and has a, has a nearby presence and is trying to expand their presence in most cases uh, in these areas. This is a perfect uh, formula 
for identifying potential portal window areas. And uh, the San Luis Valley is one. The Sedona Verde Valley area is another one. Um, they're, they're scattered around. Uh, and if you do your research, you'll find that uh, there is a, a preponderance of activity. Uh, generally, if there's going to be any sort of siding wave uh, in, in a region, it's going to be centered around one of these portal areas. Another thing, too, I think is interesting is is the, uh, at least here in the Southwest, the tradition of the Native Americans of the Sipapuna or Sipapu, uh, the place of emergence where the people are led underground to be protected uh, during earth changes. In the case of the Hopi and Zuni, um, it's a it's a salt mine and a hole uh, in the Little Colorado River Gorge that uh, opens up into a huge subterranean city that's uh, in close proximity to, the, to Grand Canyon. And again, uh, you know, we've, we've stated this a couple of times, uh, all through uh, the world, all around the world, and all different cultures going back into prehistory, you have uh, very similar sounding uh, you know, stories, legends, and, and uh, belief systems. And one thing I want to know is uh, in 1998, they developed the capability to map the Earth's crust down to a 40-mile level into the Earth's crust. I heard that the first place that they mapped was Giza, and the second place they mapped was the Yucatan, uh, the Yucatan Peninsula, which is uh, honeycombed with uh, cenotes and underground cavern systems and i'm wondering who's sitting on all that data and how how much of the earth's surface that they've already mapped this would be a very interesting research project i think for for one of our listeners out there who feels motivated you know we have a great group of listeners who participate actively in the message boards that might be something for them to research maybe one of our guests has something to add we will find out on the other side of the show we have christopher o'brien our co-host mike cleland alan greenfield william michael mott walter bosley You'll hear more on the other side of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. The co-host is Christopher O'Brien. We're featuring Walter Bosley, William Michael Mott, T. Allen Greenfield, Mike Cleland. Now, Walter, I gather you have a comment to amplify something about what Chris said and maybe give us some really interesting new information, Walter. Absolutely. I, I am a big fan of, of Christopher's research because he's really a big chunk of what we're talking about. He, he has personally uh, brought to light. Um, just over this last weekend on Saturday, there's a, a friend of mine, a guy I've known since high school, and um, he's interested in these things. His name is Stan Shambaugh, and you're going to be hearing more about him. He's starting a website called Legend Has It, and what he's going to do is go out and investigate all sorts of strange and interesting sites and present little webisodes. And he just did the first one, and he invited me to be a part of it. And um, he asked me, I started remote viewing a couple of years ago, and uh, for whatever anybody thinks about it, I was made a believer because it was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life to learn how to do this and to see how real it is. And um, he asked me to um, remote view the site before I knew where we were going. And I did it the night before. He gave me a blind cue target that was a number associated with the place. I did a viewing 
And then once we got out there and I learned where we were going, um, within the first few minutes, we found an object that I had viewed in my initial viewing, blind viewing. Um, I walked right to it. And then we walked into, oh, by the way, this place is Devil's Gate Reservoir in uh, right on the border of Pasadena where JPL is located. And it has a history of strange, unexplained disappearances. In fact, three or four children out with their parents walking on trails. I mean, their parents are looking at them. They go right around a corner and then they're gone. They disappear. They drag the water. They scour for days the park area. They find no evidence whatsoever of what happened to these uh, missing children. This is in the late 50s up to 1960. And then I did, um, anyway, we go into the park a little bit and um, I did my second viewing of something he had blindly cued in an envelope and um, I came up with what looked like a descending curly cue. And as you can imagine, my ultimate conclusion, I even wrote the word vortex. We're talking about a vortex here. And then I opened the envelope, and what it was was um, an article on Devil's Gate Reservoir. Now, I had never been there before, and uh, it was it was just a, a very interesting um, experience. And then as we walked through the park, we found another thing that, that I had viewed. And I came away from that. I am convinced that um, the stories you would hear about Devil's Gate, if you look into this, is that there is indeed some type of vortex there. Uh, Jack Parsons was intimately familiar with the park and would do a lot of things there. I, I believe he had made uh, Aleister Crowley um, familiar with the location. And at the very least, and um, occult scientists have been fascinated with the place, you know, according to the stories for years. And it's it, it just, and I was just, you know, throwing that in because, in my experience, in my investigations, you know, absolutely, there's this interdimensional aspect, there is a geophysical, topographical. Um, feature to this that is very, very important. Chris, I think we should bring you, know, you back for a response to that. Okay? Well, I agree, Walter. Uh, there, there, I think there is a formula that can be uh, you know, followed that will help I- identify these, these places. And, and basically, I've just by listening to your account and your description of this particular area, um, I think it probably has some sort of exalted history. I would, I would imagine if you did some research that there was something special to it, some special qualities ascribed to the area. And then the close proximity of JPL, uh, <laughs> I don't think is a coincidence. Uh, you know, this is so stimulating for me because I, I am so tired of being called alien guy. Oh, here's the guy that believes in alien. No, well, you I see, really they call me things too, so but it's not very common. <laughs> it's just so refreshing to be talking to some 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 thinking, you know, cogent people with open minds that aren't aren't programmed by the the media and by a lot of just bunk that's out there. And and you know, really, my hats off to you guys. I, I really, we need more creative thinkers like we have as our guests on this show here uh, today and and I I really think that it's it's time for the the ETAs the ETSs the ETHers whatever to stop running roughshod on creative thinking in this field because this is highly complex I, I agree that there's probably all, everything is probably happening. There's probably aliens here, time travelers, uh, dimensional shifters. We're probably inundated. This is a grand central station for, uh, you know, paranormal, uh, intelligences. Uh, it would, it, it would seem to me that's probably the safest answer I could come up with. Just cover all my bases. So, but, but again, I, I do, uh, I do feel that, that, there is something uh, very tangible uh, that we can do, 
as investigators, uh, especially if you're out in the field and you want to do field work. I think there are areas that are window areas, and it, 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 if this is true, then it would make sense to me that we should marshal our resources and really concentrate our investigative efforts in these particular window areas because I think we stand a much better chance of, of gaining forward momentum and gaining knowledge and gaining understanding, gaining hard data if we do focus on areas that maybe have more activity and maybe have some sort of portal Stargate sort of quality to them. And, uh, you know, I'm not discounting the whole idea of a subterranean uh, element to this. I in, in some of my investigations, I interviewed a, a, uh, a Hispanic miner who uh, helped expand the lab, uh, the Los Alamos lab underground in the late 40s and into the 50s. And uh, he told a story to his family that was quite, quite amazing. They broke into an sure. ancient tunnel system. And uh, they were told the, the team was broken up. They were all given different assignments, and they were sworn to secrecy. And uh, they could tell by the amount of mineralization uh, that this man-made tunnel was was at least ten thousand years old, if not older. And uh, and and this is just another indication that there's really something there's something to uh, this idea of cavern systems and caves and you know, shaver-esque sort of quality to this stuff. And sorry for going on so long. Alan Greenfield, you wanted to jump in with a comment before. Yeah, I, I think that it's important to do some of these uh, cross-disciplinary studies, and uh, the mention of Jack Parsons reminds me that there are at least two kinds of, uh, quote, stargates. I'm kind of wary of that term, but let's say um, transportation devices to otherwhere. I don't, I don't really know what term to use. Type number one could very easily, if I wanted to hide one, I suspect I would build a, uh, a tunnel and hide it in a tunnel. Uh, that just so that, that may be the, uh, the cross-disciplinary answer to uh, taking a Shaverian view, but understanding that the Earth is not hollow. That, in fact, some of these entrances are in uh, natural caverns or in um, hollowed-out areas, but that they are there to conceal them. Those tend to be at points on the Earth's surface that are at the convergence of ley lines or whatever you call them on any particular continent, and um, there are lots of them. The same kind of uh, Native American legend that uh, was mentioned in the Southwest exists right here in, in Georgia, and uh, um, uh, Tallulah Gorge is uh, the reputed home, according to the Cherokee, of the Yamwi Chumdi, the, uh, the little people, and you, there is an, there's an entrance located there. I say that I don't like to identify locations because of all the, that's a very, Tulula Gorge is a very dangerous place in and of itself, let alone anything you might find in a cavern there, but that I have mentioned in print, so thousands of people have, have already seen it, so I'm, suffice to say I'm not going to get the exact location, but it clearly is a um, an old mine shaft that contains a portal, and that um, I've talked to oh, maybe half a dozen people who have been in and out of it and had all kinds of peculiar experiences. The other type of portal seems to be the type that shows up in occult circles that is, in a sense, invoked, brought into being by a particular ritual. And in the case of Jack Parsons, who was an early um, uh, JPL scientist, I think even before it was called JPL, and who wound up blowing himself up by doing experiments with rocket fuels in his, um, in his home, 
on March 2nd, 1946, if I'm getting the date right, he and a gentleman by the name of L. Ron Hubbard, who later became famous for other things, along with uh, Marjorie Cameron, um, invoked over a considerable period of time what became known as the Babylon Working. And in occult lore, that is frequently known as the opening of the entrance to otherware, which was never closed, and that um, dates shortly before the beginning of all of these strange events that have occurred around JPL that don't have anything to do with, with JPL. It also, of course, is uh, right before the modern era of uh, applying saucers began, and that has been noted by others as well. So they seem to be something that can be constructed. They seem to be something that uh, can exist naturally, and they seem to be something that can be, uh, in a very real sense, conjured up. That should be of the most interest because if that is true, well, it's it's something that can either be demonstrated or disconfirmed. It's something that can be worked with, and I do, and I have my own personal opinion on that, but the point is reproducibility is moving towards the sort of proof that we would need. If you can conjure up a portal to otherware, go through it and back, you are accomplishing something that uh, can be objectively verified, and that's precisely that movement that Eugene have, have well, Eugene have, have uh, been saying, uh, we're stuck in this uh, sort of revolving door situation. That would be the breakthrough that would be required. It would require the, the work of a number of people um, for me to do it and not have someone confirm it that uh, was a dispassionate observer would be just me saying it. But um, uh, if you did have uh, recording equipment and a detached observer or two or three or four, um, it perhaps would be something that would uh, border on proof of entrances to otherware. And of course, that would blow all theories about accepted theories about reality completely out of the water. One of the problems I see with all this is something we can maybe bring up to date, Alan and others, is that the phenomenon, of course, is mirroring our society. So we're not really seeing what's really there. We're seeing what we kind of expect to see. So the question is here, if we have this way of traveling to this elsewhere, would we even know where we're going or what we're seeing at the other side? Who wants to take that? I'll jump in. Okay, Mike. Uh, I'm just going to jump back to Mac Tony's in, in his book and in, in the in the things he talked about and, and some of the things I talked about with him directly. He made the point that these all these things are eminently testable, uh, given enough resources, given enough money, given enough time, given enough mind power. If if we wanted to somehow collectively in our society, these things are being dismissed. Uh, sometimes dismissed with a lot of contempt, but they they are very much um you know something that that proper research could look into now the thing that 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 uh mac and i talked about and that he talks about also is that this whole phenomenon has a way of of jumping out of your grip uh, as soon as you try to look at something it it might um uh skip off and and uh and not be as easy as you thought so uh, he wrote a a very f- sweet essay about uh uh playing with a laser pointer with his cat where 
the uh, person playing with a laser pointer can point the laser pointer, can point that little red dot on something on the carpet, and the cat will think it's alive. Uh, the cat will look at the little dot and not realize that the actual uh, person controlling the dot is, is well across the room using a piece of technology to deceive the cat. And somehow that is an analogy that, that rings so true with this whole thing that something is going on. Uh, which is very hard to define, and all of us have our own vocabulary words, uh, but that thing that, that's happening is somehow so elusive and almost elusive on purpose. It's purposely theatrical at times and then, and then quite purposely elusive and, and jumps away from our, our ability to perceive it properly. And that, I think, goes straight to these, the concept of these vortexes and these portals. Uh, that's almost the realm not of the present-day dogmatic scientist. It may be someday, but it seems much more the realm of the, of the mystical shaman that lives in a, in, a, in a primitive village somewhere where we uh, would have to quantify it with uh, lofty terms like parallel dimension, where the, the shaman may have a much, more, uh, uh, a much better working knowledge, though the, though the vocabulary may not jive exactly with the scientist. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox. Plus, a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. This is the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen. We have Walter Bosley, Mike Cleland, Alan Greenfield, Michael Mott. The co-host is Christopher O'Brien. Walter has a comment, and then Michael wants to add something. Walter? Yes, I just want to uh, bring up something that's probably not going to be popular among any of us, but um, I, I've, I've, I've got a book coming out. I'm not going to talk about it here. I've... I barely ever talk about it publicly yet. And anyway, this, this research has really taken me down some the strangest roads of my life. And I, I want to throw out there on the elusiveness of this, like uh, Mike was talking about and Mac had written about and we've all been aware of, is that um, the farther you go back into the, the studies of the strange and, and, and you know all these weird things, we have to remember the admonition of ISIS, and that is... Tell no one. I think the more we want to know the truth, if you really want to know the truth and you really want to know what's going on, um, I suspect, my experience is pointing to, I suspect the best way to learn the most is to not talk about it, you know, not write books about it, not get on and speak publicly about it. And the source of the information, the source of the phenomena 
is more willing to open itself up to you. But um, that's not as fun as speculating and talking about it and, and writing our books. But uh, and I'm you know one of you guys who gets out there publicly and does it. But uh, one thing my experience is the last couple of years is teaching me is you know those who truly know you don't know them publicly. They keep it to themselves and they know more. Sounds like what Peter Kaur used to write about. Anyone remember Peter Kaur here aside from myself and Alan Greenfield? You don't. Mm-hmm. All right. Alan, do you think we should bring up the name of Peter Kaur? Try Camilla. Try yes. Camilla. Tom Camilla. Why not? But uh, go by his real name, Tom, Tom Camilla. Go for it. Okay. So, Alan, I'll, I'll frame it. Sure. Camilla was one of the earliest people who, who postulated a sort of a interpenetration of reality ideas, although he was billed by Ray Palmer, who published a lot of his uh, stuff as uh, under the pseudonym Peter Kaur as the skeptic. In fact, his column was called The Skeptic's Corner. What he was a skeptic about was the extraterrestrial speculation, but um, he was not necessarily um, a against the notion that some sort of um, non-ordinary phenomenon was at the source of all of the, uh, what we will call the UFO mystery, and a lot of other things besides. And he certainly anticipated and influenced my own thinking on the subject, which is that when we deal with fairies, and this is what pre-Valet as well, we should point out. This is what, early 1960s, late 1950s maybe even? That's uh, right. From Palmer's uh, Flying Saucers to the Palmer's Forum, uh, those places, he had really novel ideas and got me thinking a lot about uh, the interdisciplinary aspect of this, that when one is examining, for example, a haunted house, that is a repeater that is haunted. One is dealing with a phenomenon that has a lot of similarities to a location that is saturated periodically with UFO cases or that is saturated periodically with Mothman cases or that is saturated with Men in Black cases or all of the all of the above, that they're all part of the same spectrum. So um, Kamala was way, way ahead of his time. I don't know if he's still living or not, but he was uh, he was a pioneer. He would be slightly older the than you and I, Alan. Pioneer being Meade Lane, who sure. then he must be alive and well and uh, running laps because I certainly am. Well, I hope he is. Maybe he'll get in touch with us now that we invoked his name. Or- now, you know what? I was just saying that part of the shame of and waste of, of it is uh, Lauren Coleman's suggestion. He said shortly after the untimely death, uh, why do some people die so young and all we hear is that they passed away of natural causes, quote, unquote. That's Lauren's. The two pieces of information do not compute. And I can think of a whole host of uh, of very, very promising ufologists and crypto-ufologists and para-ufologists that have uh, gone out early, uh, certainly way beyond the uh, what one would expect from the, uh, the, the kind of typical pattern that, uh, that one sees for life expectancy. So it's um, the more you know, the more danger you're in. Exactly. exactly. Something to the notion of not looking. However, I am still on the, um, if I can keep the floor for just 30 seconds more, I'm, um, I'm still on the notion that whether we're able to objectively 
see the phenomenon as it truly is, with a capital T on the truly, or not. We still have the question of, are we dealing with a non-ordinary phenomenon? I don't consider that to be a settled question. And if we are able to advance the cause to the point of saying we are or are not dealing with non-ordinary phenomena, on a high evidential level or a proof level, I would say we've advanced the, the we've advanced the um, knowledge of the subject a great deal there. Whether we then go on to uh, distinguish between what's real and what isn't real uh, in some sort of objective sense, I'm not even sure if that's the right question to ask. Maybe a totally wrong question. There may not be any one reality involved here. When you mention the time travel paradox, maybe time travel is happening all the time. But uh, it's already happened because if it's time travel, if it's ever going to happen, it's already happened. So the changes that might have been made have already been made. So maybe every second we're seeing a change that we couldn't expect. Michael Mott, you had a comment. Yeah, yeah I have a few because we've thrown out so many ideas here. But uh, the last question that, that we had mentioned that I was want to talk about you know, we talked about evidence for windows, window areas and how people might accidentally wander to those. And I know that I believe it was Chris O'Brien who had something in one of his books about a, a, a structure somewhere in the southwest where people claim that when they walk through this thing or between these pillars or whatever it was, that they came out in a slightly distorted view of the same reality, but they were in a different place. And 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 this has a, has its uh, has its antecedents in, in this precedence, both. I mean, it it, it goes it goes all the way back to the fall fairy lore for sure. You know, somebody accidentally wanders into fairyland, and it has its, its parallels in UFO literature. It claimed that you know they end up in these strange places that they think are other planets. But you know, how do we know that that's what it is? It could just be another phase of reality that they've actually actually been actually been taken to, or they've accidentally stumbled into. And you know. When you look at the, what Walter said about the kids walking around the, the corner at Devil's Gate and just disappearing, you know this is a thing that occurs again and again in, this, in, in the accounts of this time, and these things are documented quite often. And sometimes they pass on to the folklore, and I guess the most famous example would be the Pied Piper, man, who obviously you know he came and conducted a whole a huge amount of number of children, and he took them specifically into the side of a mountain, and the mountain was sealed up, and they were gone. I'll be like, well, you know, that's just a fairy tale. Well, you know, according to the traditions of that town and to some historical accounts, something happened that that tradition is based on, that that story comes from. You start talking about the dangers. You know, Chris was talking about, you know, going to, uh, for us to, you know, go investigate a specific area. And then Alan said, well, you know, I don't want to take people, tell them where a certain area is because of the dangers. But even more than that, if people don't go into these, if they, if they go to some of these places for amusement, they might not find something that's so amusing. And I think that, that the evidence uh, of different accounts right, bear that out. Like the Charles Marco the exit in the blowing cave where he was suddenly swarmed by yellow jackets and killed. Um, you know, the, these things, you know, people will say, well, that's just a coincidence. Well, you know, it, it happens again and again and again. And so when you take, I guess what you would call newbies into uh, this type of stuff and they decide and they want to go explore and, and there's no telling what they might really find themselves in the middle of. And one of the things that comes to mind is the uh, episode of Ghost Hunters. And I, you know, I respect those guys, and I, I'm glad they're using all that cool equipment and everything. But more than the spirit world, 
possibly, is it not possible that they could be picking up transmissions from somewhere else on the spectrum? And it's not just the spirit world. It's, it's, it's another phase, as Chris would say. And I remember the episode where they went to, uh, they went to Ireland and they were, they were using their, uh, their heat sensitive stuff to view, uh, their, Two of their guys or three of their guys were walking across a, uh, a top of a field toward these ruins. And suddenly, literally up out of the ground, come several little figures, oh, I guess, guess about two or three feet high, who start crouching and creeping along and following them. And they're showing up with a completely human heat signature. In other words, they follow these people for dozens of yards. And they capture all this on video. And then when these things slink down and disappear again, they say, oh, look, man, you know, we call it spirit activity. Well, I've got news for those guys. I mean, I've got, I've got respect for them. But spirits don't have a super hot core fading out to orange, fading out to yellow across the field. Okay? And when they get back to the, to the thing, they had, a, they had a little encounter where something, the guy said something ran them, and they chase this thing, and they chase it. And it runs past them, and it goes into the ruin, and they capture an image of a face. And the face actually looks strangely similar to some of the faces that are some of Richard Shaver's rock photos, or rock photos, which are in uh, my book, This Tragic Earth. But it was very a very eerie face. And when was the last time a ghost or an apparition ran from somebody? In other words, ghosts usually are, are, counted, are, are said to just, they're not even aware you're there. They're wandering around. They're doing their own thing. You know, to have something run through you, just through you, but like, I mean, collectively as a group, and somebody actually sees a physical or a quasi-physical entity, and it's fleeing, and it runs, and they chase it. That's, that's basically, to, to me, that's either I'm going to get your attention away from over here where you were from these other beings, or I don't want you to see me, and I'm going to lead you away from you need where I don't want you to be. You know, these things, there are a lot of conclusions that people jump to in, in studying this stuff. And another thing that I kind of wanted to, to, to speak on, going back to the children thing, you know, it was back, and I have the statistics in my book, but, you know, in 1998, over 800,000 children disappeared in the United States alone, period. They disappeared. Now, some of those were runaways, maybe, what, 10, 20 percent? Some of them were probably the victims of killers and perverts and things of that nature, okay? But that's still going to leave a sizable number of kids. Where did they get? What happened to them? You know, if, if, if something happened, if there were like a, a terrorist attack or a disease or something like that that was taking that many kids every year, it would be an outcry. There would be huge media coverage. It's just so strange to me that this is a worldwide problem, by the way, and it's not just children, it's adults too. You know, Michael, one of the things, Michael, about this is the fact that if a scattered disappearance yeah. occurs, right. a child disappears, an adult disappears, you right. chalk it up to any sort of number of reasons. Right. Exactly. It's when there's a mass killing, a mass disappearance where people would be concerned. You know, if right. 500 right. people disappeared tomorrow from their homes, wow, what happened? But if those 500 disappearances occur all across the earth and they're not connected in any way, we're not really as interested in what's going on. Hi, 
Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned in to the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Walter Bosley, William Michael Mott, Alan Greenfield, Mike Cullen joining us. Our guest host is Christopher O'Brien. We're talking about Earth-based UFOs, UFOs from another time, another space, whatever. Michael, you had a further comment. Yeah, this is something that whether it's UFO literature or whether it's fairy lore or even tales of the gods and the demons and the devils, succubi and by and, and so you know, the accounts and, and the, the warrants go back into antiquity. You know, even the Bible says, you know, beware. It says, it says have respect into the covenant for the dark places of the earth are filled with habitations of cruelty. Okay, this, this is a theme that we find. People disappear, bad things happen, and be careful, watch what, you, you know, watch what you're doing. And so when you have this, this number of people disappearing inexplicably, and most of these people disappear inexplicably, they're not all running off, changing their identities, or, or whatever, especially the kids, okay? Um, this one, I want to say that, that the thing at, at this gate is indicative of something that's not necessarily benevolent. At the very best, this thing seems to be indifferent except when it wants something, um, this phenomenon. I want to mention something because this just occurred. This is a news story that, as of the time the show is heard, will be a week or so old. And I'll read it. The headline is from the Associated Press. A rescuer says God led him to Florida girl in swamp. Florida man says God led him to an 11-year-old girl lost for days in a swamp. He said he was clutching his Bible, reading passages about the serpents in the Bible when he came upon this missing girl. Anyone have a comment on things like that? Or is the person just, you know, wishful thinking? Well, I think think that uh, it depends on your personal worldview. I believe in God, but so maybe this guy had a genuine experience. If if he were a psychic, or like Walter, he said he remote viewed it, would anybody argue with him? You know, I think... That I don't, I don't, I don't think, think it's necessarily either or. The actions of, of God and the actions of someone who, who receives uh, guidance through some uh, explainable, albeit very um, uh, paranormal methodology, I don't see those two things as conflicting. It's defining it in different terms. And I'm also very comfortable with a monotheistic belief and am equally comfortable with uh, the notion that we we exist in a very, very, on a day-to-day basis, in a very narrow plane of reality of which we are only a tiny, tiny portion. And uh, those those are, are, are not incompatible concepts. In fact, I think they reinforce one another. That's my personal opinion. I have another train of thought. I don't want to lose it because I think it touches on all this. This is all terra incognita, after all. Right, exactly. Um, you, you know, when you look at the strange things that happen and you look at regions like, you know, the Bermuda Triangle and, and some of the anomalies that exist in the, in the magnetic field of the Earth, 
I know it's been postulated by other people that possibly there's a, a white hole within the Earth. You know, a white hole would be the opposite end of a black hole. Um, you know, who knows what is the true support of the, of the, of the, the fact that our molten core spins it like it does. It generates the electromagnetic field of the Earth because that's how, that's, it's like a battery. That's what, that's what would come along. It's a big electromagnet. If we had something like that going on, and there were, there was something like that, say, orbiting the core or inside the core, the, the molten, most iron core, then this would explain possibly a lot of these anomalies. It would explain some of the the uh, the, the gates we were talking about. It, it might have something to do with a lot of the paranormal activity, because the closer you get to the event, the event, I mean, the creation of what this is, at which point it comes into being. It's quite possible that the closer you get to the creation of it, uh, of it, the more of these phenomena you're going to see. And I say that because once something like this created, it's going to send ripples through space and time. And it's going to, it's as if it's always been there. In other words, it's of such density that the, the, the normal laws of physics don't apply. And it's as if it's always been in play, but the closer you get to the creation point, the stronger and the closer together the way it's going to be. Does that make sense? So, you know, this may have something to do, if, if there were civilization here that tapped into that, if there were civilization created that, or, you know, you have something like the LAC over in Geneva, let's say in five years they have an event and they create something. You know, maybe that, maybe that accounts for the increased incidence of high strangeness that we're seeing as we move forward. But not just the fact that, you know, that we're technologically, you know, more savvy and we have more faster communications. Maybe maybe it's all tied together. It's just something to think about. And, and uh, I think it all is intrinsic to the Earth. I think it all has to do with the energies and the electromagnetic field and the structure and the density and the densities of, of our own planet. And it always has. To touch on the ETH, I would like to say that anything that seeks to suppress, ridicule, and out of hand dismiss other belief systems or other or other uh, modes of thinking or other theories that's not hypothesis that's a religion okay and it has its true believers and it has its high priests and uh, they're very very protective of their religious turf and so I submit that you should call it ETR <laughs> I agree. Oh, I like it as the extraterrestrial religion. <laughs> well, they, they talked uh, extensively about that on uh, on the last uh, show, with, uh, uh, talking about the work of Mactones, both. Well, Greg Bishop and, uh, and Nick Redfern uh, and Paul Kimball had some very uh, <laughs> sharp comments uh, relating to the belief system that's uh, become entrenched in uh, ufology. And and you're absolutely right, Mike Michael. That uh, that's a real problem. And you know, it's as soon as you try to try to uh, you know swim upstream against the uh, against the you know the the status quo within ufology, you do tend to run into problems, and you are ostracized. Well, I'll tell you, in the last couple of days, I, I came into contact with somebody online. Some of you may have seen it was over at the uh, UFO Iconoclast website, where somebody basically just, just gored attorneys in his book and made a bunch of false assumptions, set up a bunch of straw on and come down, um, sought to ridicule through Richard Shaver, who obviously, this guy really knew little to next to nothing about Richard Shaver. Um, apparently, he went to Wikipedia for all of his information. And, you know, 
see, I had to write some, you know, in rebuttal to this guy because basically he is presenting the point of view of a religious fanatic. You know, you know, all I can say is find it and read it. <laughs> but, but, you know... Do you believe in UFOs? Right. It's unscientific. Yes. Okay. They want to be. They want to present themselves. Why does belief have anything to do with it? Right. They want to present themselves as so scientific, but then they won't even consider any other possibility, and they have they have a certain paradigm that they stay within. And when you give them data that doesn't match the paradigm, for instance, you know all the documented, documented, heavily documented cases of channeling. A poltergeist activity, demonic possession, all these types of things that have been associated with a lot of very famous UFO cases. Okay, oh that we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about how we think they land. We want to talk about how they probably flip around and defy the laws of physics. Well, you know, defying the laws of physics is just as supernatural as a poltergeist throwing something across your living room. Okay, so you know they they ignore data. They intentionally take stuff out and they ignore it and they set it aside. You know, and cryptozoology to some extent does the same thing. I mean, because they're so desperate. To say, well, these are flesh and blood things, and they're typically within. Well, yeah, sure, they they may be within the the template of earthly life on the surface, and for the most part, but there's still often anomalies. There are anomalies associated with these creatures, which would indicate, you know, that maybe they too were from somewhere here, but some somewhere that we don't normally see. Some a part of the biosphere or a part of the structure of the planet that's not normally something we interact with on a day-to-day basis. You know, um, if I can jump in here, Mike had asked me to mention, um, you, you guys can hear me, right? You're coming through loud and clear. Okay. Four by uh, four. Go I ahead. Can hear you. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to tell the story because you can read it elsewhere, but um, Mike had asked me to mention, um, you know, and we're talking about things that are here with us that you don't normally see. It reminded me of this. But uh, in April of 2005, I had an article published in Fate, and it was under a pseudonym. I used my fiction pseudonym because, quite frankly, and I haven't really said this before, actually, in these words, so you're getting a scoop. Um, In the first half of the last decade, I had employment that was, we'll call it, sensitive. And um, I traveled around the world and stuff like that. And uh, at the time this article was published, I, I wasn't really right for me to do it under my own name for that reason. But I did it under my pseudonym EA Guest, and it, it was in. It ended up being in um, a hardcover edition that Fate did on all you know the various theories of what Roswell might have been. And uh, I, I was kind of pleasantly surprised to learn that Mac had uh, talked about this in his. His book that I think uh, Mike Cleland did the um, artwork for, and Nick Redfern again talks about this very um, story uh, in his current book, the Contact T book, and you you can read about it in those two books or in the Fate books. But essentially, it's something my dad told me he encountered when he'd been telling me for over 30 years what Roswell really was, that he had been briefed in on it in the Air Force, and that he had, in in his encounter with the people underground, um, this was in eastern Arizona while he was in the Air Force in the late 50s. And And it kind of, you know, there's another... You know, uh, for me, it was kind of a first-hand account from someone, in this case my dad, of these beings, these people that, you know, are living right here with us, but not apparent 
You know, we don't have a super large amount of time, Walter. And I wanted to mention to our listeners that Nick Redfern will be back on the PowerCast to talk about the book Contactees. And we'll also have Jim Mosley on that episode very soon now. Okay, Walter, like in, in. 10,000 words or less, can you tell us what you learned from your father about this? Yeah, basically, he uh, was briefed in on Roswell because what happened at Roswell in 1947 was a craft from the civilization underground crashed on the surface, and it happened again in the late 50s in eastern Arizona. He was part of a uh, military effort when he was on active duty. He was uh, taken to uh, this area in Arizona, which was um, underneath the vicinity of Winslow and Sholo and all that, and uh, that that's where he had his encounter, and um, one of the beings they encountered. He said they are as human as you and I. They just have little to no body hair. They're very pale. They have an advanced technology that does work kind of telekinetically because th th this being, you know, um, pretty much uh, killed one of the guys he was with with a handheld device. And that, that those those are the basics. And apparently they went underground thousands of years ago because of a surface uh, cataclysm. That's the old wow. Shaver story all over again. Kind of, sort of, yeah. Absolutely oh. is. Where is Mac when we need him right now to, to jump in on this? Uh, I wish we had Richard Shaver here. Of course, Richard Shaver died in the 1970s. I met him, as I mentioned to our listeners earlier. I had extensive correspondence with him, and I know Alan did as well. My ex-wife, Geneva, also had a lot of communications with him. And one of the things that Shaver brought about, and I know we're running back and forth on subjects because there's so much to cover in very little time. You mentioned it, Michael, the rock books. Now, supposedly these were some kind of crystalline record of ancient times. But before I ask the rock book question, and it's not rock and roll. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Mike Clellan, Alan Greenfield, Michael Mott, Walter Bosley... Our guest co-host, Christopher O'Brien. The so, trickster! <laughs> and the trickster also is here. like David. <sighs> the trickster is here <laughs> amongst us. Michael Mott, tell us about rock books. Well, you know, uh, Shaver 
had, you know, earlier in his life, he had he had uh, claimed to have seen indications of an of existing technology or pre-existing technology, as he called the pre-flood world. Uh, you know, a pre-cataclysmic time when the Atlans and the Titans are, which are basically the same people. Um, I guess they could, you could equate them to nations, two different nations. But when they existed on the Earth and the planets of the solar system they had branched out to or, or they had a, sort of an empire going there. Um, and they had recorded all their histories, their entertainment, everything in stone. And by and there was a technology he claimed that they had had where you could take these rocks and put them in the technology and it would basically create an, an immersive environment around you and you could see everything that had been recorded. Well, at the time that Shiva wrote this stuff, you know, it, it seemed just, you know, way out there. But, but now we know, of course, about, uh, about holography and about uh, the advent of the quartz, the, the ability of quartz in particular to record and store information. Um, and so what, what Richard Shaver did was he, he moved to Summit, Arkansas, where he spent most of his, uh, or at least the last half of his life. And while he was there, he went to the called the Rock Book Studio. He, he claimed that he had found these rocks in the mountains there, and he was cutting these rocks open with uh, a rock saw. And then what he would do, he claimed that, the, that, of course, that these were the records and that the images inside the, the books are jumbled and they're, they're, they're layered and they look kind of straight. That's because they're actually meant to be played back by a three-dimensional device. So when you cut into them, you're basically destroying the record. But he would cut these things into really thin slices and then he would, he would make photo exposures either on like a canvas that he had treated with a photosensitive thing so that he could then make a painting based on what he thought he saw or else on the photographic paper. And I was lucky enough to come into contact, I mean, not contact, into possession of a large number of these, these photo exposures that he had made and he had sent to Ray Palmer. And uh, it was probably the basis or the, or, or the pitch for the secret world. And so I, he, I also have a little book that he created for the same thing called This Tragic Earth that he sent to Ray Palmer. And so I've got a book out you know, which is trying to present Shaver's ideas in Shaver's own words and then with some of these images, uh, it's called This Tragic Earth. But, you know, he, he was ridiculed and people, you know, he's crazy and, and so forth and so on. But the interesting thing, and, and I don't know if you know Dennis Crenshaw, but Dennis pointed me out, pointed out to me recently that there was a, a news story recently where some scientists somewhere in the United States claim they had found evidence that somebody was recording tiny pictures inside of rocks or in rocks or on rocks thousands of years ago. They don't know how they did it, but they found this incredible new data. I guess you would have to, to talk to, to Dennis to, to get all the information on that. But, you know, it's just like just now, you know, science is catching up with what Shaver would say, you know, whether, whether it's holography and an immersive virtual reality environment like he was trying to describe or, or you know, storing data, playback data in crystal form. You know, all of these things that he talked about, well, now they're becoming reality. And, and uh, you know, he, he's been greatly ridiculed by people who pretty much know nothing about, you know, all they know is they've heard he's, you know, he's a guy that you ridicule. You know, to associate yourself with Richard Shaver is to set yourself up to be seen as a crackpot. You know, that, that kind of attitude. And really, you know, I, I see that as a, as a, and that permeates what we're talking about anyway. I mean, that is something that I talk about in my book. I think that that's a, that's a protective mechanism that we have as a species. It's because we've been dealing with this stuff for so long that, that it is so frightening that that we tend to, d to diminish and ridicule these things and people who have these experiences or people who talk about it because it's so 
disturbing to our worldview, and it would make it so hard to function otherwise as a society. And so, you know, that, I guess that could have something to do with the, ET, the ETR and their problem, but uh, I, I think that's mostly about power and, and control. So does that answer your question? Very much so, very much so. I know after looking through this for so many years, I actually got to see some of the pictures, or I thought I did. It might have been a cosmic Rorschach test. I didn't have any equipment at hand, but it was very fascinating at the time. Alan, did you do much study of those rock books when you knew Shaver? Oh, I did. I did more than uh, more than uh, that. Uh, Shaver, um, uh, I showed an interest in them, and Shaver didn't just send me pictures and thirty-five millimeter slides. He sent me the rocks, like. Um, when he was uh, had first uh, fled from uh, Wisconsin to um, was it Arkansas? Yeah, yeah. He um, uh, started doing these these cuttings, and he would uh, he would send me the he had um, uh, send me the the rocks themselves, and I had maybe a hundred pounds of the rocks, and corresponded with him about it. And um, at the time, I, um, I in fact the only surviving letter I have from Shaver is him saying, why can't you see these things? Well, it was hard to do, but I was not factoring in some things because this was the mid-1960s and I was not factoring in lasers, holography, and so forth. So I turned these rocks over to my friend Terry a long time ago. And um, maybe 10, 15 years ago, Terry showed me something absolutely fascinating, and I wish I... Uh, uh, um, could show that, but uh, you know, in a podcast, radio program, whatever, it's very hard to do. These cuttings of rocks, these thin cuttings, if projected as a as a hologram, uh, and I'm not an expert in holography, but I I know what I see, are absolutely fascinating. And the the two dimensional image, however uh, close to the original it is, doesn't do it justice. These are pictures. Now, I don't know what to make of them. Again, I am not a believer in the hollow earth, but they are clearly pictures of something, uh, uh, things that you can identify, a, a priest holding a wand uh, uh, and uh, a bird flying towards the priest um, uh, in three dimensions. Now, this suggests something, uh, we're talking about rocks that are millions or billions of years old. I don't know what to make of that, and I, I no longer have access either to Terry, uh, who is right. either alive or dead, I don't know, yeah. or to the rocks, and I wish that I did. I've got a couple of them, and I've got some of the slides and pictures. I don't even have anything to project the slides anymore, but um, it's not an inkblot type effect. There definitely are things there, but it's the, the information when I received it I didn't have the necessary decoder ring, and the decoder ring is the holography. And can I, can uh, I say something uh, on that? If anyone has any of the original rocks, go ahead. Yeah, you know, in this tragic earth, the book that I did using the title of Shaver's booklet, I mean, it's got a lot of extra stuff in it. But what I did was I took the, the images that he had sent, the, the photo exposures, and I scanned them in at very high resolution in Photoshop. And then I zoomed in on them in Photoshop, and that's when I started finding stuff. And I mean, I found some stuff that's pretty inexplicable. Now, some of the stuff people look at it and say, well, you know, that's just coincidence. That's just, you know, the, the human mind looking for patterns. But I'm going to tell you, man, that there are some things in there that you will, once you, it might take you a minute to see it, but once you look at it, you'll say, 
how in the world did that end up jumbled in the same slice of rock as all these little, little images off of the same slice? You know, it, it's, it's obvious that there's something anomalous going on here. And also in the book are several things from older magazines where Shaver tells you how he did it. His entire procedure on how he created these things are all in there from various various uh, books like, uh, um, oh goodness, I'm trying to think, Search Magazine and, and Fate and other older magazines. But there's definitely, he was on to something. I think Shaver's problem was he came, up, he came across... To, to a lot of people in such a way is so out there that, that they just instantly dismiss whatever he was going to say. But in a lot of ways, he was ahead of his time. And, you know, of course, he had his conflicts with the science fiction community who just were just aghast that, that, that this guy had claimed that his stuff that he was writing about was true. And so they did everything they could to discredit him and Ray Palmer. And uh, so, you know, it was it, he just never really got the break that he probably should have gotten in terms of, of, of his ability, kind of like, like Mac, as a thinker. And so so um, I guess that's what that's all I have to say. But yeah, you can definitely, uh, if you can get your hands on some of these things, you can scan them in, and you will find uh, images that are definitely three-dimensional images, even though you're looking at them in a two-dimensional environment. Well, maybe some of the technology that we're learning from the movie Avatar to make 3D movies we could use to project 3D rocks. I don't know. I wish I had some of those rocks. Exactly. If, if anybody has any of the original rocks anymore, oh, I don't know. Well, I don't, uh, Gene? Um, well, no, I've thing. moved many times since then into you many states and many existences. Um, let, me, let me touch on this real quick. Sorry. I, I've been contacted by some guys out of Arkansas who are doing a documentary on Richard Shaver. And they're very, very serious about this, and they want to interview anybody and everybody who knew him, who had anything to do with him. And uh, these are some real reputable guys. One of these guys is a police detective, an investigator. The other one is a district attorney. And they're making a documentary, and from what I can gather, they pretty much have a lot of respect for Shaver. And, you know, this, this is the kind of... Uh, um, they're, you know, this kind of gives, gives you, these guys are professional investigators. That's what they do for a living. And they seem to think that there's a, something to a lot of what Shaver said. So I guess uh, uh, Gene and, 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 and Alan, you know, since you guys knew Shaver, I probably should put you in touch with these two guys. Sure. I'm no problem with that. I'll send, I'll send you an email. Okay. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, the outer space... Okay. Uh, Gene, you might recall uh, a sort of a duplication of some of Shaver's work, something that uh, when we were investigating Brown Mountain, we ran across the Outer Space Rock Shop Museum run by this um, very unusual contactee, although his story resembles those historically. Um, I know you interviewed him. In fact, I've got a photo of you interviewing him. Uh, Please don't and, publish uh, that photo. We don't want anyone to see that photo. <laughs> No, listen, we're just about out of time. It's a great photo. Oh, is it? Well, yeah, but when I look at myself today, I say, well, you know, I weigh about the same, but I look a little bit older. We're just about out of time here, so rather than start anew another subject and be forced to go over another six and a half hours, let me ask each of you separately to tell our listeners where they can learn more about the things you do. Mike Cleland. You can look at my blog. I have uh, two blogs. One is illustrations, and the other one is uh, uh, the sort of paranormal stuff that I've been involved in, and uh, it's hiddenexperience.blogspot.com. Alan Greenfield, where can we find more of your work online? 
Google my name. It's A-L-L-E-N-G-R-E-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, and you will come up with 2,610,000 entries. So I'm easy to find. We know where you are. We know where you've been. Michael Mott, where can we find more of the things that you do? Well, you can find uh, pretty much everything, in terms, uh, at least in terms of links to, to different places of uh, nonfiction and research of, of this nature, uh, fiction work, and which also includes some of the elements of this stuff, and uh, artwork at www.mottomorphic.com. That's M-O-T-T-I-M-O-R-P-H-I-C.com. Walter Bosley, you're a new friend of the show. We are happy you came aboard, even though you came in a few minutes later. Where can we find more of the things that you do? Um, you, well, you can find uh, my uh, story I referenced uh, that I wrote under EA Guest in Mac Tony's and Nick Redfern's uh, new books, Nick Redfern's Contact e-book. Um, I am scheduled to speak at the Mount Hood Paranormal Conference the weekend of April 25th. On, that, by the uh, way, is when the show is actually going to be heard. Oh, okay. Very so maybe timely. we can jump ahead of it. And what do you have next? Um, I, I am uh, my book. I'll be speaking on the book Latitude Thirty Three: Key to the Kingdom, which talks about interdimensional portals and ley line intersections, and that can be found at kevinsmithshow.com. And you can find me on Kevin Smith's show a lot and uh, sitting in with Greg Bishop and such. Um, after that, um, I will be speaking in October on the same thing at a conference in um, just outside a paranormal conference outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. Oh, OK. Christopher O'Brien, what are you working on? What can our listeners check out? Well, of course, I do have my uh, my latest book, which is called Stalking the Tricksters, which attempts to put a unified field theory for paranormal phenomena out there. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty ambitious uh, project. Uh, I've gotten some good feedback on the book. I have a website. It's called OurStrangePlanet.com. We do live in a strange planet, and uh, there's tons of information there. My entire database is there. And, uh, and of course, I'm uh, always going to be found there on the Paracast uh, forums as well. That's right. He's also one of the moderators, so if you're a bad boy or a bad girl... Yeah, I know how to. I know how to ban people now. That's right. I taught him how to ban people. Something that Paul Kimball long ago <laughs> discovered, and so Paul, of course, <laughs> led us in this great degree of knowledge. As I said in a future episode, we're going to have Nick Redfern to talk about his book about contactees, and Jim Mosley will be joining us, the eternal Jim Mosley. I want to have a special thank you for this fascinating session to Mike Cleland. Alan Greenfield, Michael Mott, Walter Bosley, Chris. It was a great one, wasn't it? Thank you all for joining us. Yep. Thank you now. Thanks, you guys. I've had a really, really good time on the show. I, I appreciate being uh, uh, brought into the fold, guys. Thanks for uh, letting me join in on this. Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Powercast.